All right. Well, friends, it is so good to be here with you all. Um, as Pastor Dave was just mentioning, I've been able to spend uh, this weekend with you all. Went to, uh, in fact, the ARP's Presbytery yesterday out in West Virginia. It was a little bit of a hike, but it was just a beautiful drive out there, and it's been an absolute joy to spend uh, the weekend uh, with you all and also with our brothers uh, in, the, uh, in the ARP in the Virginia Presbytery. So thanks for giving me this opportunity to preach the word to you all. Uh, as David mentioned, I'm currently uh, uh, in consideration for the church plant out in Williamsburg. And it's such a pleasure just to be able to uh, consider what God is doing out there and consider uh, what he may have in store for the church out there. I've had a uh, joy of just uh, guest preaching for them twice already, and I'm excited to see uh, what the Lord continues to provide and how he continues to direct in all of that. Uh, without further ado, um, uh, tonight we'll be, again, as Pastor Dave was just saying, in Psalm 84. So I would like to invite you to go ahead and turn to Psalm 84 in your copy of God's Word. Now, in the words of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, a uh, famous preacher at that, he said this, that Psalm 84 is one of the choicest of the collection of the Psalms of Peace. He goes on to say that it has a mild radiance about it, entitling it to be called the Pearl of the Psalms. A very significant psalm at that. Now, to illustrate this idea of, of this Pearl of the Psalms being so magnificent and yet sublime at the same time, uh, I want to tell a quick story. Uh, see, back in 2003, my family and I we're uprooted. We moved all the way from Seattle, Washington, all the way out here, well, to Lynchburg, Virginia, two hours away from here. And at the time, I was wrapping up my final year in middle school, uh, 14 years old and about to finish up my last year there in public school in Seattle. And uh, being a bit sentimental myself, every single moment leading up to that final moving day seemed to be just filled with meaning and significance. One of those moments that I will never forget even 20 years later almost, uh, was this opportunity that my friends and I had to go from classroom to classroom uh, during a school-wide fair and participate in various activities there at our school, Rainier Middle School. One of the activities that my friends and I chose to go to in particular was pretty peculiar, honestly, looking back at it. It was, of all things, a rock polishing class. <laughs> Now, it's safe to say I have never experienced anything like that before, nor have I ever since then experienced a rock-polishing class. But in that class, each of us teenagers were given the opportunity to choose a few all-too-ordinary stones. Some were emerald green, some carnelian orange, some just a simple, plain white color. And during this time, we learned from the teacher about the process of buffing and polishing these ordinary stones. And at the end of that short little lecture and class, if you will, we were able to hand the teacher a few of our favorite stones and trust that she would work her artisanship on these stones and do what she had explained to us about polishing and buffing them. Now, about a month later, right before I moved away, I ended up receiving these stones back. And surprise, they were seemingly worth a fortune as they came back to me. These plain old ordinary stones had become extraordinary. See, what was ordinary had become only extraordinary, though, at the hands of a skillful master. And friends, this is what Psalm 84, I believe, is all about. You and I are very ordinary people. 
And yet we are, as Ephesians tells us, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we would walk in them. These things that God has planned in advance even. And so God is in the process of transforming our lives into these beloved trophies of his divine grace. And not just our lives, though, but God is in the business of transforming every station in life that we go through, every season of life that we find ourselves in, into moments in which the praise of God adorns and sanctifies us into a truly happy and gospel-saturated people. And so with this in mind, I'd love to invite us to now read from Psalm 84. I'll be reading from the ESV here in Psalm 84. Of course, this is the word of God given to us in love and forever faithful and true. We hear these words from the Lord our God himself. Starting in verse 1, he says this, the psalmists say this really, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Bacha, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the reading of God's word. And with this still fresh in our minds and upon our hearts, let's go ahead and come before our Heavenly Father in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you that we, first of all, have the privilege of approaching you as indeed our Heavenly Father, our good and our gracious God, of whom we have sung about this evening already, same God we have worshipped as long as we have been yours. So we thank you for calling us to yourself, for calling us to this place of of worship, and we ask that our worship now, even through the reading and the preaching of your word, would be as a pleasing aroma before you. We know, O Lord, that you delight in us, that as Zephaniah 3 tells us, you rejoice over us with loud shouts of singing. And Lord, honestly, we often feel the opposite of that. We often feel downcast or tossed aside or put down. And so, Lord, I ask that as we come to the preaching of your word, that you would tend to our souls, whether we come from places of mountaintop experience or the seeming valleys of Baca ourself, would you unite our hearts to yours and would you set our hearts upon Zion in this place? And so we ask all of this in the 
powerful and mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, friends, no doubt this psalm, Psalm 84, is simply sublime, isn't it? It's peace-filled, if you will. See, there's a kind of peaceful bliss that attends this psalm, and in it we find not one and not two, but actually three uses of that word blessed or happy, as I know you all have been going through in a series on these psalms. We see that word happy or blessed specifically in verses 4, 5, and 12, and so I want to structure tonight's sermon around these three verses as a bit of a framework for us. Now, the first time we see the word blessed is actually in verse 4, a little ways down, in which it says this, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, doing what? Ever singing your praise. Now, notice that it doesn't say, blessed are those who do great things, or blessed are those who rise to the top of the corporate ladder, or even blessed are those who work mightily for the Lord. No, Rather, the writers of the psalm, the sons of Korah in particular, say, blessed are those who dwell in God's house. That is to say, simply, that those who love the Lord God and those who seek to build their lives in and upon his holy habitation are the ones who are truly most happy in this life, as Pastor David was preaching this morning as well. See, the late Presbyterian pastor Jim Boyce noted in his commentary on this same psalm that the undertone, or supertone, really, if you will, is high and uplifting worship. And this worship here is experienced by those who long for the Lord with their very being. Consider again with me verses 1 through 2 of this same psalm. It says this, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. See, here, in the very opening of the psalm, we see a kind of holy love sickness for God on display. A yearning in the ones who wrote this. A yearning in their hearts for God. It's the kind of phrasing here, how lovely is your dwelling place. It's the kind of phrasing that you might only hear in a, in a voicemail, per se, from your wife or your husband after you've been apart for a few days and you've longed for each other to see each other's face once again. But there is something remarkable here in the context of this psalm. See, this psalm was actually written, again, as you can see above verse 1, by the sons of Korah in particular. Now, like the sons of Asaph, to give a little context here, these men, the sons of Korah, had a peculiar role within the household of Israel. They were, in fact, the singer-songwriters, if you will, of that generation, but they were also the doorkeepers, or the custodians, if you will. In 1 Chronicles 26, verses 1 through 19, which I will not read here for the sake of time, but I would encourage you to read it later, that passage, 1 Chronicles 26, describes for us a little bit about the background of this psalm. See, during the time of King David, he, along with the other officials, sanctioned specific roles for the different houses of Israel, by casting lots, of all things. How would you like to have your role in life cast by lot and decided upon by the dice? But the Korahites here were those from within the household of Asaph who were chosen by God's providence to guard and take care of the colonnade or the court on the western side of Jerusalem. Now, these men were of ordinary stature, but they were tasked with serving the Lord and his people 
through the normal upkeep and watchful vigilance of those city gates. Why? So that no evil would ever enter, hopefully so at least, into those city gates. They were there to protect the praise of God's people, in other words. Their main task, though, of standing there, watching and waiting, would seem so mundane to us. They were men who simply had the time to watch the birds go back and forth and fly around. And so they ended up passing a lot of the time by singing and playing on their acoustic instruments in order to pass that same time. They were, if you will, the definition of starving artists in that day, playing their music for a living, if you will. But they served the house of Israel, and more importantly, the God of Israel in so doing. And you know what? They loved it. They loved every minute of it. Hence why there are so many psalms that we have in the Psalter right from their own lips to our listening ears. See, though they were merely standing at the gates, peering into the mysteries of God from a distance, their hearts burned with an unquenchable passion within them for the living God. Friends, you and I are not unlike those sons of Korah. See, on this side of glory, we are yet those who are still peering into the endless mysteries of God in Christ as though through a mirror dimly. But through the preached word and the sacrament, which we will partake of after this message, God is making us long all the more for that final day of fulfillment when we shall see our Savior's face in full and behold his power and his glory. Don't you long for that day too? But until then, you and I continue to look onward with eyes of faith and hearts of longing. And so through these ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the word and the sacrament, prayers, fellowship, through these ordinary means of grace, we're caused to grow in our looking and in our longing. And according to 1 Peter chapter 1, it says this, that we are indeed those who are very, very much like these psalmists, uh, nomads, exiles, vagabonds, waiting for that heavenly kingdom still, even now. But God's happiness attends us in every station of life. And so Psalm 84 is not necessarily a psalm of a sense, if you will, like we see later on in Psalm 120 through 134. Rather, Psalm 84 is actually a song of stations, if you will, being stationary. It's a song of recognizing that true joy comes from knowing the sweet fellowship of God, even in the mundanity and in the ordinary things of this life. Not just in the seasons of obvious growth and revival, when we see our friends come to a saving knowledge of Christ, or when churches are planted, or even when politicians or elected officials bend the knee to our risen king. Rather, the happiness of God can be and is meant to be experienced by us even now. And it can be. And so the sons of Korah describe this event as happening even there in their own lifetime. They describe this peaceful bliss for us here in verse 3. They say this again, even the sparrow finds a home, 
and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. This imagery, again, friends, is so sublime. See, here in the midst of holy, ardent worship, with sacrifices being made unto the God of heaven, common birds of the air are yet making their nests in the shadow of the Almighty. And both of these kinds of birds, the sparrows and the swallows alike, represent something far grander than just mere birds to us here. So you may recall in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus, in Matthew 10, verse 29 specifically, asked the disciples rhetorically, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And of course, all of us today are like, oh, are they? I I didn't know that. (laughs) But he goes on to say this, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. In other words, these birds were cheap. (laughs) In Matthew 6, 26, during the same, oh, actually the Sermon on the Mount, he comforted his followers with these same kinds of words, saying, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And his point being this, are you not of more value than they? Do you believe that? See, in ancient Israel, sparrows represented this idea of worthlessness before the passerbys. Young boys who were hungry for old-fashioned gyros and falafel with hummus, if you will, exaggerating a little bit, would go out and catch a couple sparrows and sell them for a quick buck just to have a little extra lunch. (laughs) Yet here in Psalm 84, we see the essence of worthlessness juxtaposed with the most worthy one. Likewise, the swallows. The swallows that endlessly flit around to and fro were indicative of restlessness or anxiousness in that day. And yet here at the altar of God, this scene of worship, the restless creatures find their rest. And so friends, if even the birds of the air named worthlessness and restlessness alike find their worth and their rest in God, how much more shall we who are graven on the nail-scarred hands of our living Savior be? As the Puritans once penned, here on earth, in regard to heaven and earth, here on earth I can have the world, but there in heaven I shall have thee in Christ. Here is a life of longing and prayer, the same thing that we've talked about, but there is assurance without suspicion, asking without refusal. Here are gross comforts, more burden than they are benefit, but there is joy without sorrow, comfort without suffering, love without inconstancy, and catch this, Rest without weariness. As a believer in Christ, are you tapping into this kind of love from your Heavenly Father on a day-by-day basis? Are you, by the mercies of God, presenting your own bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as your reasonable act of worship? Well, this then brings us to our second use of the word blessed here in verse (laughs) 5. It says this, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. We see a major transition here happen though, right? From those who are stationary there at the temple now to those who are considered pilgrims or or people going through the changing of seasons. 
See, whereas the first four verses considered those who were at the gates of the city, here now we consider the fact that happiness or blessedness even attends God's people as they travel both literally and figuratively throughout the course of this life. Now, this time I can personally relate with uh, verses 5 and following in this section in my own season of life. Uh, Lord willing, uh, I'm in a place of potential relocation ahead with uh, just simply my dog named Baxter, Chocolate Lab, about a year and a half old, and all my belongings along with us. <laughs> and for those of you who have moved from one place to a new town, you know all too well the stressors of moving. You've, questioned, or you've rather faced the questions of uncertainty, and I'm sure you've made the contingency plans for your contingency plans if things don't work out according to your own way. <laughs> Perhaps in this season of life, you may feel as though you are secure in matters of job security and family life and relationships. But you, deep down, you may feel as well a kind of spiritual restlessness in your own soul. Or perhaps you know full well that you are in a season of transition. And so when you read of this Valley of Baha in verse 6, something about this resonates within you, even if you don't quite know what that Valley of Baha means, <laughs> which admittedly, I had to look up the Hebrew word for it this past week because I didn't quite know what the Valley of Baca was until this past week. But the Valley of Baca here comes from the Hebrew noun Bachim, which literally means weepers. And I know some of our translations translate that for us in the English. But what does that mean exactly? The Valley of Weepers. What was the context there? Well, in Judges 2, verses 1 through 5, it illustrates for us exactly what this valley of weeping meant for the people of Israel. It was a very significant place, packed with meaning. And so Judges 2, verses 1 through 5, tell us the following about this same valley. Here's the context. And it even regards, I believe, a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Judges 2, verses 1 and following say this, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bachim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But this part is heart-wrenching. The angel of the Lord continues, and he says this, But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out from before you, but rather they will become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and, here's our key word, wept. And so they called the name of this place Bahim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, for the people of Israel, even in King David's day, as this psalm was being written, the Valley of Baca continued to represent a thorn in Israel's side, even as a nation. The word Bahim, then, as a noun, has an alternative Hebrew, though, uh, meaning in the original text. And that word doubles as uh, uh, the word for a kind of mulberry bush that grows in that place in Israel. And there's definitely a pun going on with that, the thorn in the side language. 
See, if you're a lover of blackberries and raspberries like me, you know all too well that the fruit of these bushes is so sweet to the taste and yet sour simultaneously, much like the wine, the juice, rather, that we were about to participate with in the Lord's Supper, both sweet and sour, bitter to the taste. But the bushes themselves, ironically enough, tend to grow best in dry or arid environments. And this is the picture that the psalmists are painting for us here. See, as we go through dry spells in our lives, even one dry spell after the next, after the next, and we feel beaten down, God still tends to us most noticeably in such seasons. And he doesn't just mend our lives in these dry spells. He actually, like those thorn bushes, causes us our lives, to bear fruit to the praise of His glorious grace as we are pressed down like wine being made. See, we as God's people are not blind to the tribulations that we face. For all this talk of happiness, the happiness of God is certainly blissful, but it is not ignorant toward the realities of this life and the hardships alike. Rather, the happiness of God is what transforms our minds as his kindness leads us to a deeper repentance and a more childlike faith in all things. Happiness attends the ones who find their strength in God's love all the more, even when our own control over life's circumstances seems to be removed and dissipate from us. To those of you who are well-traveled on the roads of life, where have you seen God's work? in your own lives over the years. To those of you who may feel disparaged or out of place, out of whack, if you will, even now, how is the Spirit of God consoling your own heart even today, in this hour, as His Word is being washed over you? Certainly you and I are not promised earthly riches or wealth or prosperity. That would be a false gospel at best. But we, as beloved children, are promised the richness of the Spirit's presence, the wealth of knowing Christ in all things, and the internal inheritance, true prosperity, that is ours in the Lord. This is what makes us glad in every station of life. And this is what causes each and every station of even weakness to become, in God's good pleasure, stations of strength. The late Presbyterian pastor, Eugene Peterson, paraphrased these same verses in this way. I love the way he said this. How blessed are all those in whom you live, whose lives become roads that you, meaning God, travel. They wind through lonesome valleys, come up upon brooks, discover cool springs and pools brimming with rain. God traveled these roads, curve up the mountains, and at last, Zion. God in full view. And I love the way that the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint put this in Psalm 84, verse 6. It says this about that same seeker after God's own heart. In his heart, he has purposed to go up the valley of weeping. Now, for my fellow grammarians, you'll notice a difference there between the Septuagint there and what we have in the English. 
to go up the valley versus to go through the valley, right? See, the believing Jews, though, and this is not a typo, the believing Jews understood that there is purpose there that is within that same verse. They understood that we are not simply those who go through the valley of weeping in this life, but rather we are those purposed in the infinitive to go up the valley of weeping so that we will end up arriving before God in Zion. In other words, the valley of weeping is not our final destination as those who have faith in Christ Jesus. For as much as suffering is a tutor to our own souls, Christianity does not teach that suffering is the end-all, be-all in this life, much like the religions of Islam or Buddhism teach. Rather, Zion is our eternal home. And our Heavenly Father's smile, secured for us by Jesus, the Son, rests upon us all the way. This is why Psalm 84, verses 8 through 9 in particular, offer to us this prayer from the heart of faith. It says this, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold, this is curious, our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. See, these verses proclaim the gospel message to us, even way ahead of time proclaims to us the glory of the anointed one of Israel, King Jesus himself, who is the one who secures for us the safety and defense that we long for, and truly every good gift that flows down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so the heart's cry here is for the Father to indeed look upon the Son of righteousness divine whenever he looks at us. And the gospel tells us this much. That he not only does this for us in Christ, he delights to do this for us. He delights to show his countenance, his smiling face upon us. Psalm 84 then previews our union with Christ. A wonderful doctrine. In the words of 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And so just as Christ belongs to the Father, you, dear friend, as a believer in this same living Savior, belong to both the Son and the Father. This, for as simple as it may sound, has a deeply profound impact on how we live our lives on a daily basis. See, to see Jesus is to see the capital H, happiness of God in full. To know and understand that your worth is not in your work or your relationships or maybe even your socioeconomic status, but rather it has been fixed for all eternity in the person of Jesus Christ, who is our liberator. And this is, of course, then the most liberating thing in all the world. These delights are what we Reformed folk call covenantal blessings. And in the words of our own confession of faith, the Westminster Confession, we read a host of these covenantal blessings. I want us to consider for just a short while these words from the Westminster Confession, chapter 8, section 8, which which reads the following for us. It says this, To those, all those really, for whom Christ has purchased redemption, he does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, meaning that redemption that Christ secured. 
making intercession for them, and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and to obey, and governing their hearts by his spirit and his word, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and in such ways as are most, and I love this line, consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. Friends, again, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher from the 19th century, this communion with God in Christ is, as he put it, the mother of all adoration. He goes on to say this, that the blessedness of sacred worship belongs not then to the the half-hearted, the listless worshipers, but rather to those who throw all their energies into it. Neither prayer nor praise nor the hearing of the word will be pleasant or profitable to persons who have left their hearts behind them. And so let us never be those whose worship is unaffected by the things of Christ, but rather those whose hearts have been set aflame by the upward call of God in Christ. After all, and I didn't plan this, but ironically enough in God's providence, Hebrews 12, which we just read earlier as our call to worship, speaks directly to this. See, we are those who are seeking truly then after a heavenly temple at a city that has heavenly foundations. And the words again that we just heard earlier of uh, Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24, it says this, that you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a word that's better than the blood of Abel. Well, friends, this brings us to our third and final use of the word happy here in Psalm 84 in verse 12, which says this, O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. See, until this point, we have already seen that there are two major juxtapositions in this same psalm earlier in the first point. This idea of worthlessness and restlessness juxtaposed with the worth and rest of God. And then similarly, we saw another juxtaposition with the valley of Baca and the highways to Zion even. And here in verses 10 through 12, we see a third and final one of the same. We are invited here, though, to consider that a single day is better than a thousand days elsewhere if that day is spent in the court of God. Now, this use of the number 1,000 may seem a little hyperbolic at first glance, but it's truly not at all unlike other apocalyptic uh, uses of that same number throughout Scripture. Passages like Daniel 7 through 12 and Zechariah 14 and Revelation where we see numbers such as 1,000 or 7 used repeatedly. This message then is brimming with eschatological language, the idea of eternity in full view, a thousand days, the endless number, the number of all of eternity there in view before us. And so then this verse deals with eschatological matters, matters of heaven and hell. Matters of blessing and judgment, all with the emphasis upon the heavenly courtroom of God. Now again, for those who are in Christ Jesus, the bliss of his presence far exceeds a thousand days spent in the tents of wickedness. 
And although this may be a bit of an argument from silence, this verse showcases for us the nature of the judgment of the wicked, even here in verse 10. See, while joy and eternal bliss await us if we're in Christ, for all those who are not in Christ and who continue in their sin and do not trust upon the Lord Jesus alone for salvation, their end is eternity outside of that same joy and bliss and favor and communion with God that we have been enjoying ourselves even in this hour. And so the unsaved may end up building tents for themselves in this life, and they may take refuge in worldly passions and debauchery of all kinds, but their tents of idol worship will prove at the last to not stand. But in direct contrast, we as believers are those whose lives have been built upon nothing less than Christ the cornerstone. See, each one of us, a living stone, are members of Jesus' body. Members who are being made fit and fashioned after his likeness, though imperfect as we are, of course, in this life. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, describes this eschatological or futuristic end of our spiritual condition in this way. It's a longer passage, but it's worth reading this whole thing for you all. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10 says this, As you come to him, meaning Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be, I love this, a holy priesthood. Why? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, and here he quotes the Old Testament, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, and here's a word of warning, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. to. But you are a chosen race royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So church, this is our forever inheritance. See, as we learn to trust all the more in this God of great compassion and mercy, we will come to know just how brilliant is his sun-like countenance and how unassailable is his shield-like protection over us. Again, in the words of Jim Boyce, wonderful pastor, he says this, as we press forward to that goal of eternal bliss, we pass through, I think it's fitting here, many autumns with falling brown leaves and cold slashing rains. But we are not disheartened by these things. On the contrary, we rise above them and go on from strength to strength, strengthening one another along the way and blessing all that we meet along the way. And so as a point of final application, you and I must and indeed are invited to live as blessings before others. Being first filled with the delight of God in our innermost being, but then showcasing his delight in how we 
live before others by his spirit. And so this gospel-informed happiness may at times feel, honestly, a bit uncomfortable. And it may even appear awkward before other people. (laughs) They may at first pass it off as just simply, oh, that's a happy-go-lucky person over there. Or perhaps it's even contrived or fake. But when they ask you, and they will, why are you so happy as a Christian? Let God's praise be so entrenched within your own soul that your witness to his grace in those conversations cannot help but just spill out and spill over into their own lives. I'm convinced that it's in this way that our evangelism and even our service in Christ Jesus' name in our community of Blacksburg and beyond will shine all the more brightly like a city set upon a hill. All the more when our hearts are set on Zion. But lest this way of life sound again, fake or artificial. Know that it does not derive from any kind of inward uh, emotion or man-centered attention regarding us. It never should be about us. But rather, it courses up from within a heart that is so transfixed on the glorious mystery of the gospel so that genuine affection for Christ and the things of Christ and the people of Christ And even those made in God's image and likeness, those things cannot be contained. See, just as the temple itself under the Old Covenant was never to be the object of worship itself, but rather the God whose covenantal dealings took place within that same temple, so our lives as members of Christ's church are not to be the draw for public praise or adoration. Rather, only Jesus the mediator of the better covenant. The suffering of the church and her faithfulness, for as noble as those things are, are never to be our goal in this life. And they should definitely not cause us to boast or be the object of our worship by any means, but rather the suffering servant and the faithful one, our Savior. It is when our hearts are set on this goodness of God in Christ that we will then know this truth from Psalm 84, verse 11, which says this, that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And that same sentiment is echoed in the gospel as it's given to us in Romans 8, verse 28, which says this, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, meaning the good, God's good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said it so well. He said this, that even the very least of God is exceedingly precious to that gracious soul that has God as his portion. And Thomas Watson once said this to a similar extent in the use of the ordinance then, again, which we're about to partake in, we draw near to God. We come into our Father's presence. In prayer, we have secret conference with God Watson goes on to say, The soul, while it is praying, is as it were parlaying with God. In the word we hear God speaking from heaven to us. And how does every child long to hear his father's voice? In the sacrament, God kisses his children. He gives them a smile of his face and a privy seal of his love. Now as we wrap up and conclude here tonight, If you belong to Christ, again, do you know his 
all-seeing eye settled on you in love? Do you feel his smiling countenance over you? If so, I want to encourage you to continue to rest in that same love of the Father as you begin this new week and go to the workplace and seek to serve this world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But friends, if you do not yet know this Redeemer as your own, and perhaps you're wondering, how can I have this relationship with the God of heaven? Well, I know without a shadow of a doubt that Pastor David and the other elders who are present here tonight, and even I myself, would love nothing less than to talk with you about that tonight and share the good news of Jesus all the more with you. But with all this in mind, as a final word, may we be a people whose hearts are truly set on Zion. May that be true of us this evening, and for all time, and all places. With that, let's come before God in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you so much that your smile is indeed upon us. We thank you, O Lord, that there is nothing in this life neither height nor depth, that can separate us from your love. We know, Lord, that come what may, tribulations, trial, famine, sword, whatever it might be, that all of these things are actually purposed for our good and for our sanctification. And so, Lord, we ask, as we heard this morning in the message, that we would truly be those who seek after righteousness, not for our own sake, to appear good before others, but rather to know your goodness and desire to make it known because your righteousness has been gifted to us through Christ and through Christ alone. We thank you, O Lord, for the gift of your word that has been given to us. And we ask, O Lord, that it would continue to make inroads into our own hearts as your face, your smiling face at that, is settled upon us in love. And so we ask all this in our powerful Savior, Jesus Christ.